You're listening to the New Security Broadcast from the Wilson Center's Environmental Change and Security Program. Today's episode is part of The Arc, a special series that explores connections between climate change, responses to climate change, and justice. I'm Lauren Reese, and in today's episode, I have the privilege of speaking to Dr. Robert McClemon, a professor at Wilfrid Laurier University in Toronto and an expert on environmental change and human migration. Having previously served as a Canadian Foreign Service officer, Dr. McClemon brings a unique lens to research and policy connections. In our conversation, he unpacks how climate change can interact with social, economic, and political conditions in ways that lead some people to be more vulnerable to climate-related displacement, and shares insights into how we can better promote safe, dignified, and just migration in the context of climate change. A quick note before we get started, this episode is part one of two, exploring the intersection of climate, migration, and justice. Robert, it's really good to see you again. I think, uh, I know that it's been about six and a half years since we last saw each other because I was very pregnant when we last saw each other and now my daughter's six and a half years old. <laughs> so that's Congratulations. how I'm measuring. That is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I'm measuring time. Um, but you generously spoke on a panel we hosted at the Wilson Center for the launch of our climate migration and conflict report. And I just, I remember um, just really admiring your research in in the writing of that report itself, but then also at at that event. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. As you know, the, this topic of climate and migration since that report has only grown in prominence. I, you know, I think from headlines on the cover of major newspapers to the efforts we see to forecast just how many migrants we'll see as a result of climate change, that coverage has just grown. But of course, headlines and forecasts can be wrong, and they also don't always uh, translate into action <laughs> necessarily, right? So I would, you know, I'd just like to start from your perspective, how has our understanding of climate-related migration evolved over the last seven years? And, and is what we know today different from the conversation that we had in 2016? I think there's a couple things, and thanks for having me on the podcast, by the way. Um, I guess the first thing, you mentioned data, and we do have better data today than we did six and a half years ago. Uh, there's an organization, for example, called the Internal uh, Displacement Monitoring Center in Geneva, and they've been keeping annual statistics over the last decade or so, and they're pretty reliable. So, for example, we know that in 2022, over 32 million people worldwide were uh, displaced from their homes by weather-related uh, disasters, so primarily droughts and floods and storms and wildfires. Uh, and these are all events that, yes, they, they occur uh, on an ongoing basis, but they are being exacerbated by climate change. And so we have a fairly good feel for the number of people who are, who be, who are being forced to move, if only for a temporary period of time, uh, because of extreme weather events. We also have pretty good forecasts about just how warm it's going to get in coming decades and how much sea levels are going to rise over the course of the remainder of this century. Uh, so we have a good idea of the uh, exposure, the, the nature of what kind of risks we're exposing ourselves to. And we have a pretty good idea of who is most vulnerable to being displaced, to being forced to make some really difficult choices in a changing climate. And probably not surprisingly, we know that they are often people who are low income who may come from families that don't have the same social networks or resources uh, as others, but not all of them move, right? It's not one of these push-pull 
stimulus response kind of relationships, we know very well that uh, increasingly that there are interactions between social, economic, political, and cultural factors that also enter into the mix. And despite recognizing today just how complex these interactions are, we have a pretty good picture of just how challenging how coming decades are going to be issues of if we do nothing with respect elevated to in climate migration discussions and analysis and responses, if at all. Definitely uh, justice and equity considerations are entering into people's thinking, scientists, policymakers, and others on a regular basis, uh, much more so than they did five or 10 years ago. And there's a couple of things going on. One is that we see more social scientists engaging with climate science, uh, even as recently as five or 10 years ago, is primarily natural scientists who tended to look at these issues in, in sort of black and white kind of, uh, you know, lenses, you know, we're going to have these kinds of climate risks, this number of people are going to be displaced. Uh, but with with greater social science engagement, uh, from a variety of disciplines, we're seeing people saying, yes, but a we have to think about adaptation, and how we can make communities more resilient, so that they are not forced into situations where they necessarily have to migrate or move. Uh, and secondly, um, I see more people looking at migration is not a bad thing inherently. It's neither a good thing nor a bad thing. It's a thing that people do on a regular basis. So what matters more is not the fact that people are going to have to move so much as under what conditions are they going to have to move? So are they going to have to move against their better judgment or their better interests or their uh, against their will? Or is it going to be in the context of making conscious decisions to better their family's well-being? Uh, and we know just from our own uh, history that when people are able to migrate with dignity through legal channels to access labor markets at the destination, to be able to remit money to uh, folks back home who don't migrate, it tends to be a win-win-win situation. It's a win situation for the migrants themselves. It's a win situation for the receiving community. It's a winning situation for the destination uh, for the sending uh, community. Conversely. Uh, when we see migrants having to sleep under bridges, having to sneak can clandestinely past border guards to reach their destinations, to have to work in the shadows when they get there, nobody wins. Everybody suffers in that situation. So looping it back to your original question, that idea of who has to migrate, who's most vulnerable, and under what circumstances they migrate, these are justice issues. These these are well beyond the scope of simply climate issues and more a case of how do we respect human rights and dignity and well-being in a way that if the climate is changing as it is, that we can ensure that people's welfare is respected and that migration doesn't cause any greater harm to anybody involved. You mentioned migration with dignity. What does that look like? So it's tough for me as a, a person who has, you know, enjoyed a, a middle-class lifestyle in a high-income country to know exactly what that means. But from people I've interacted with who, for example, have lived all their lives in small island states uh, that are on the front lines of the impacts of climate change, when they talk about migration with dignity, what they essentially mean is we don't want to be refugees and we don't want to be treated like refugees, primarily because we know that refugees are not treated well. What we want are options. We want the ability to be able to migrate in pursuit of our economic aspirations, our cultural, social aspirations, to do so legally and to enjoy the advantages that any other migrant would do so. So to give you an example, 
you know, uh, people from small island states may wish to migrate to Australia or New Zealand to be close to loved ones, to participate in labor markets, be able to remit money home. Uh, and it may be a, a flow of people back and forward. Some people may not want to live their entire lives in Australia Australia or New Zealand. They may wish to simply spend part of their working lives there. But the ability to do so legally uh, and so that they're able to, you know, further their family's well-being and to contribute to the communities that they join there. That's what migration with dignity means. Unfortunately, uh, right now, it seems across the world, higher income countries seem to think of migration as something to be controlled, restricted, prevented in some cases for refugees or low-income people to be excluded wherever possible from, you know, from migrating. Uh, and that's the opposite of that. So what we're talking about essentially is uh, recognition that when it occurs under the right circumstances, migration is beneficial to all. And it is, uh, it brings dignity to those uh, who are participating in it. So I think that's my understanding of, of the concept. I, I like how you frame that. I think your point about the fact that you're not a migrant who's struggling with the different dynamics that are forcing people to make choices that they wouldn't otherwise make, right? But that that's a that's an important point in and of itself that we need to be engaging and including those folks in these conversations to understand what migration with dignity looks like because it starts with them, right? Do you see um, processes or improvements in how analysis is being done or in how policies are being uh, developed in, you know, in regards to climate-related migration that is uh, accounting for the perspectives of those sort of at the center of this discussion? Well, there's been some great thought and great policy research and even great policy development with respect to climate and migration. So I'm thinking about, for example, just a few years ago, the development of the, the, the global compacts on migration, the global compact on refugees that are designed to facilitate safe, regular, orderly migration. Uh, now, these are not laws. These are guiding principles for the international community, and it's come out of the UN uh, UN process. They're non-binding arrangements, but if we actually look at these, these agreements, these compacts, documents, they actually provide really useful blueprints for governments on how they should respond to environmentally related migration. And they actually deal with those questions explicitly. They're wonderfully thought out and they, they, they think about both in terms of how to help and protect people in their countries of residence, but also how to help and protect those who need to leave those countries. Unfortunately, not many countries have actually embraced these. Um, in theory, they all signed off on them as, oh, okay, you know, this is a good idea, but no one's actually implementing them on any scale. And this is often the case with these types of agreements. That said, there are some regional agreements that have emerged in recent years in, for example, the African Union, uh, in Central America, looking at migration within those geographic regions, and essentially allowing a certain amount of migration for environmental reasons. But at a global scale, and certainly involving high-income countries, there are very few policy arrangements that you know, are actually being worked upon on any, uh, on any notable level. Hopefully we get there. Um, there's been, just thinking off the top of my head, also the, the, the United Nations, there have been human rights rulings in recent years, for example, saying that people cannot be deported 
from a high income country to a, another country where the, the risk of climate change threatens their their health, their well-being, their livelihood and so on. Uh, so there are these bits and pieces around, uh, but we have a long way to go before before we actually have in place a sort of a global model for how to deal with the very real fact that we're going to have more and more people on the move in a changing climate. So who do we see being affected by climate migration or climate related migration today? And how might that change in the years and decades to come? Great question. I guess we can think of it in geographical terms. So anybody who's living in an area that's highly exposed to tropical cyclones, hurricanes, extreme weather like that. So essentially, we're talking about most of the east coast of the United States and the Gulf of Mexico, the Caribbean region, the Bay of Bengal, and then Southeast Asian coastal states and the Philippines. We can also think about places that are highly exposed to flood risks. Um, so all the large river basins in Asia in particular, uh, going from you know China right across uh, from east to west, going from China through to Iran and the, the Middle East even. And we can think about drought as well and um, you know, drought prone regions uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, in uh, South Asia. And of course, I've, we could add the United States to a lot of these as well. There's a lot of heat and drought prone uh, regions in the United States, uh, as well as flood prone regions. And then this emergent risk of wildfire, which I know in my own country, Canada, has displaced quite a number of people in 2023 to date. Uh, it's also displaced a lot of people in the United States, Australia, parts of Europe in recent years. So geographically, we have a good idea of where the settings are just in the short term, the next 20 to 30 years, we're going to see higher levels of, of displacement. And we can think about where are the fastest growing areas in the world, because obviously, where we have high rates of population increase in one of those geographical areas, we elevate the number of people who, who are exposed. So we can think about heavily populated uh, river basins and deltas in East and Southeast Asia, South Asia. Uh, and then we can also think about income because high income societies are able to make investments in flood protections and early warning systems and so on. So again, it's low to middle income countries, primarily South Asia, East and Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, tropical areas of the Americas and so on. So we can sort of see just on those basic principles where the risks are greatest. And we're already seeing that in the statistics that we're seeing right now. So we're seeing, for example, that each year the most common sites of weather-related displacements are places like China, India, Vietnam, the United States is always in the top 10. Uh, and so just on current trends, that's where we can expect more and more people being displaced. Now, whether they migrate is the second question. Most often when people are displaced, they try to move back home if they can. And if they can't, they'll relocate within their home countries or to, to immediately adjacent ones. We are starting to see, you know, more and more people moving from south to north for a combination of reason reasons that include uh, weather and climate related events. So migrants coming from Central America to the United States, climate often plays a, a, a factor in the sort of the range of factors that motivate that migration. We're also seeing it from parts of Africa and South Asia at small scales now, but we can expect that to grow with each passing uh, year that we do nothing about the root causes of this, which is, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. And as we sort of efforts ramp up to curb those greenhouse gas emissions, 
um, and move towards a renewable energy future. Do you see any risks in blind responses to climate change unintentionally exacerbating people's displacement? Yes. Yeah, so there has been some research done, for example, on deforestation, efforts to combat deforestation, uh, especially in low and middle income countries. This has been sort of one of the early ways through which UN financing mechanisms have tried to deal with climate change through what we call mitigation efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So we'll have high income countries transferring funds to lower income countries to be used to uh, combat deforestation. But there has been concerns that some of these projects to get funded under these um, under these sorts of initiatives may have impacts on the local people who live near or in the forests or who make use of forest resources in lower income countries and are, and are being shut out of being able to access those resources in the name of fighting climate change. We want to avoid those sorts of outcomes. The other thing is that, quite frankly, I think we're moving very slowly on improving green energy in low and middle income countries. For example, when we think about I'll give the example of, of I lived in Southeast Asia in uh, the 1990s, and the country of Thailand essentially skipped telephone wires and went directly from few people having access to telephones directly to a nationwide network of cell phones. So they sort of skipped that approach to telephone services that we used in North America, where we initially strung telephone wires between every house in North America. They sort of le leapfrogged that. And we can see lots of opportunities in low and middle income countries where, you know, electrical grids are still very rudimentary and are still developing to sort of to skip through a lot of the dirty fossil fuel technologies directly to renewables and, and uh, small scale hydro, things like that, uh, and really advance their non-fossil fuel energy sectors while at the same time stimulating economic growth. And that's really what we want is we want economic growth. Uh, we don't want to cut it off. We just want to make sure that it's not contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. And by building resilience and, let's face it, household wealth in low and middle income countries, we make those households more resilient and reduce the risks that, A, that they'll be involuntarily displaced by climate hazards, or B, if they do get displaced, that they're able to recover much more readily than uh, currently is the case. And certainly, for example, the World Bank through a project called Groundswell, has looked at a variety of scenarios for displacements in low and middle income countries in coming decades. And they have a huge range of estimates. And a lot of it depends on what is going to be the, the nature of social and economic development in these countries. Are they still going to be poor 30, 40, 50 years from now? If they are, then the number of people displaced and on the move will be much larger than if poor countries are not so poor. And so uh, that's a long way to answer your question, which is, yes, we have to be cautious that in trying to fight climate change, we don't inadvertently make things worse for low-income people within our own communities or in other countries. But at the same time, we shouldn't let that prevent us from uh, essentially from rushing ahead with uh, transitioning to a greener energy sector and a greener economy. Right. Well, rushing ahead with our eyes wide open, right? Yes. Um, no, that's what, those are really great points. I think, and I remember at the event in 2016, you spoke about the importance of development investments in sort of mitigating the security risks that can come from sort of environmental change or from displacement um, or forced migration. And, and that sort of speaks to the points that I think that you were just making 
there, right? Just the sort of broad uh, development investments that can increase the resilience of communities to climate change and and being forced to move. If you don't mind, I'm going to switch gears. I want I wanted to talk to you about sort of the role of receiving communities in all of this, right? The the places where uh, we might see these migrants move to, whether that's internal to a country where they already are or across borders. What do you see as the role of receiving communities? in these sort of climate-related migration discussions and how should they be incorporated into the discussions and decision-making? Well, certainly they should be included, right? We can't just sort of, and I think that's one of the things that we're seeing in the United States right now is the fact immigration from Central America to the United States and, and others who are coming to the United States via Central America, it's being portrayed as a crisis. Uh, in the media, amongst politicians and political conversations. And it, it's all about, well, who's going to have to accept these people, essentially? And it's always talked about these people, that sort of generic sort of pejorative, right? And so we see stunts like the, the governor of Texas, you know, putting people on buses to California or buying them tickets to Martha's Vineyard. And Florida, too. Yeah. And Florida. Yeah. And so uh, this is an example of the wrong narrative that is emerging in high-income countries, and not just the United States, about what migrants have the potential to offer to receiving communities. But at the same time, receiving communities do need assistance in absorbing and integrating larger groups of people that may be, you know, in addition to the normal flows of migrants that they're, they're used to ex- accepting and expecting. And so, for example, housing is a challenge right now in many parts of North America. And so here, even here in Canada, housing is a challenge where we have trouble finding homes for homeless people within our own communities. We have trouble finding housing for low-income families in our home communities. At the same time, we are receiving migrants, receiving receiving refugees, people seeking asylum, uh, who add to the uh, challenge of providing safe, affordable, accessible housing for all. So every time you ask me a question, I seem to complicate things by bringing in external factors completely unrelated to climate change. But that's my point, is that when I think one of the things that comes out of the crisis as it's portrayed at the U.S. border with migration is that there's a lot of folks in the United States and a lot of communities in the United States that are struggling to provide housing and support and jobs for existing communities. And now they're you know, they're worried about this yet another wave of more people coming into their communities and they don't have the capacity to cope with them. So the point is that to, again, for receiving communities, all of us, when I say all of us, I mean, all of us at a a macro level have a role in ensuring that the actual locations that migrants go to are supported and have the resources available to help uh, accept and integrate Uh, folks. Because let's face it, when migrants arrive in our countries, whether it's Canada, the United States, or Colombia, or wherever, they don't just disperse randomly, right? They tend to go to particular communities, particular places, either where there's the family networks or social networks or where there's employment available. So we need to make sure that those receiving communities have the additional resources to, to integrate folks. And when it's done well, again, it can be a win-win situation for everybody involved. But again, what I see, unfortunately, looking around the world right now is that in too many places, uh, migrants are being, you know, villainized and 
receiving communities or potential receiving receiving communities are saying, no, we don't want any more. That's a really bad dynamic in a world where there are going to be more people on the move. Are there any success stories when it comes to climate-related migration that you can think of? I mean, I think that, you know, or even migration more broadly, right? Because there are so many lessons to be drawn, whether it's cross-regionally or sort of looking across sectors and cities um, are often great incubators for innovation. Are there any successes that you would point to? Well, in terms of climate-related migration or environmental migration, one of the challenges I don't know if we talked about explicitly is, well, who is a climate migrant and how do we define them? More more often than not, there are folks who have had to move for a variety of reasons with climate or weather-related events being part of a mixture of things. But there are a few examples. I know that coming out of Fiji, there's a lot of evidence that there's planned relocations taking place of of coastal communities uh, in Fiji that are exposed to coastal hazards and and rising sea levels. And the research coming out of Fiji suggests that um, there has been some success with those relocations, primarily because the people who are being relocated are playing a role in the decision-making process. So that input helps. At a larger scale, migration more generally, I'd like to say there's lots of success stories, but I think it's more of a case of there are bright spots in different countries for different reasons. So for example, in the case of, well, I'll speak from my my own country's example, Canada here, uh, we are generally open-minded about the the idea of migration uh, and that it's necessary to building a stronger social and economic future for all Canadians. Um, And that indeed, the long-term economic health of the country depends upon a steady, regular intake of migrants. And so the government of Canada in recent years has been increasing its targets uh, for migration. And so the government of Canada actually each year say, you know, we this year we want to bring in at least 350 migrants or 400,000 migrants. And we'll go out and issue visas to allow that number of people to migrate legally. And that's ideally the way we would like to see most countries manage things because it's quite remarkable how patient people will be and go through regular channels if they think that there is a hope of, of getting through that process. When we see people, you know, these, they call them migrant caravans or what have you, moving through Central America northwards, those are folks who they don't see any other option available to them. And staying behind isn't an option either. And so that's the kind of migration we need to figure out. And it's not easy because the demand for opportunities to migrate to Canada, to the United States, our countries can be quite large. So how do we balance those needs? And I'd like to say I have a, a straight answer for you. I don't, but I think this, the, the best answer starts with the mindset that migration is good when it's done properly. So let's start to craft our policies that way. And I think that's where I think Canada does provide some guidance to other countries rather than the more poisonous rhetoric that occurs in in other countries that I won't name out specifically, where, you know, we don't want migrants, keep out, let's build walls, let's put up, you know, let's fly drones over the, the ocean or over the border to make sure that people can't get in, turn them back and so on. Like, that's not the right mindset to start from. Robert, thank you so much for your time. Uh, It's really a pleasure to talk to you again, and hopefully we won't let another six years go by. It'll be great to have you at the Wilson Center again soon. So thank you very much.
It was my pleasure, Lauren. You've been listening to the new security broadcast from the Wilson Center. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, follow us on Twitter at New Security Beat and visit newsecuritybeat.org.